Hello, it's Thursday, the 11th of November. I'm Gary Bowerman. On today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Malaysia-based filmmaker and travel storyteller, Camilla Delart. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So on today's show, I'll be chatting about travel, cultural heritage, and nature video content with award-winning filmmaker Camilla Delart, who is based on the northern Malaysian island of Langkawi, one of my favorite places. So Camilla, thanks very much for coming on the show. How are you doing? And how's beautiful Langkawi today? Thank you for having me, Gary. Um, the sun is shining in a few days. Langkawi is opening to international travelers again. And I'm really excited to be on your show. So a pretty good day so far. And, and whereabouts in Langkawi actually are you? Oh, I'm in a very quiet, uh, off the tourism spots place. It's uh, close to Pantai Kok, not far from the Datai area. Oh, that's a beautiful area of the island. So, so Kamala, let's start. Let's go back uh, to the beginning. You were born in the Czech Republic, um, but you've lived, worked, and travelled across many continents. At what point did you realise that travel would become a sort of a central role, not just of your life but your career? I officially positioned myself as a tourism industry professional when I set up my marketing agency 10 years ago. But um, I guess looking back, travel played a very important role in my career pretty much from the beginning on. Now, you have an extremely diverse educational background. You studied literature and art in Munich, ethnography in Mumbai, cultural anthropology in Oxford, and spa management in Toronto. So let's talk a little about your spa career which took you to several countries, including Malaysia. Tell us a bit more. I find it so interesting. People often comment on how diverse and colorful my educational background is. Um, you know, they seem surprised about some of my career moves. But on the inside, it actually feels like a seamless journey, you know, natural progression. When I first started in the spa industry, I traveled the world to study traditional healing practices at the very source of their origins. I went to Hawaii to learn the Kahuna massage, to India to study Ayurveda, and to Thailand to learn from Buddhist monks the traditional Thai massage. And it's pretty impossible to separate these ancient practices from culture at large. So that's how my interest in anthropology was born. And once I got into filmmaking and started to specialize in cultural heritage films, studying visual ethnography, which is a subset of anthropology, seemed like the next logical move. So somehow everything seems connected to me, at least. And uh, I even feel that although I left the spa industry more than a decade ago, the experience very much shapes the nature films I'm making today. You know, similarly to a spa ritual, they engage the senses, make people slow down, put them in a highly receptive state of mind. So we'll come to the filmmaking in a moment because that's something we, we want to talk about in, in some detail. But when you were running your spa and, and involved in the spa industry, you were also a travel feature writer for several leading publications around the world. What drew you to travel writing and what types of stories did you enjoy producing? I was a storyteller ever since I was a little girl. Like my grandfather typed up, illustrated a book I wrote when I was 10. He made copies, had them professionally bound, so it looked like a real book. Uh, well, not a masterpiece, but you could tell that writing was my way to engage with the world. So once I started traveling, it was only natural for me to capture my experiences and stories. 
Um, initially, I wrote mainly about spa and all these ancient healing practices. And as the field of my interest widened, I progressed to full destination features. So in 2011, which is 10 years ago now, you established your own creative agency, which specialized in content creation for the tourism industry. Your website says that you were drawn to the cultures of Southeast Asia. You chose Malaysia as your base. What were the reasons for that and what, what encouraged you to stay here for, for a decade? Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> I'm not completely sure whether it was fate or just coincidence. Uh, prior to landing in Langkawi, I was moving around a lot and kind of reached the point of wanting to settle down for a bit. So Langkawi just seemed like a good place. Then I fell in love with my little river chalet. It's situated in a completely quiet part of the island, surrounded by nature. So a really inspiring place for my creative work. And thanks to Malaysia's central location, I have excellent access to all of Southeast Asia, which is great for our business. So I really didn't plan to stay this long, but 10 years down the road, I'm still here. <laughs> so looking back on that time, what were your objectives when you originally set up the agency and have they changed over the last decade? I felt that a lot of the existing destination campaigns were off target when it comes to Western market, particularly the segment of mature affluent travelers. The aesthetic preferences and the mode of communication that appeals to Europeans is quite different from what works with Asian markets, or that's what I think. So I set out to fill the gap. My objectives didn't really change that much over time, but my mode of storytelling has. In the beginning, it was just writing. But once I discovered filmmaking, I realized the amazing suggestive power of this medium and began to transition. And these days, writing just complements the series of short films that make up the core of my destination campaigns. And across that time, you've worked for several tourism industry clients, including Tourism Malaysia, tourism boards of individual Malaysian states, including Discover Langkawi. Um, so tell us a bit more about some of the projects that you've worked on. A year before the pandemic hit, uh, I was working on cultural heritage series for the Visit Malaysia 2020 campaign. I created four episodes capturing the spiritual rituals of the Muslim, Hindu, Taoist and Buddhist communities of Malaysia. Thanks to COVID, I didn't get to make the final episode about tribal rituals in Malaysia, Borneo, so I'm really hoping to complete the series now. The latest film project was a slow travel nature production for the Tanjung Guru Resort here in Langkawi. And during the pandemic, I created a brand new destination website for Langkawi. It has an interactive map with 25 destination videos, well-structured accommodation, spa, adventure shopping, dining guides, with all the write-ups based uh, on my own experience. So I believe the website really gets across what makes Langkawi special, and I hope it will help the island uh, with the much-needed tourism recovery. Yeah, let's hope so. Uh, we'll put a link up to, to that website in, in the show notes. In terms of your own filmmaking style, Kamala, how would you describe it, particularly for your own projects? Do you apply different styles to, to different client work and, and to your own personal works? Not necessarily. You know, I have meanwhile established myself. I'm known for my signature style and there are plenty of filmmakers to choose from. So usually when I'm approached by a client, it's because he, you know, likes the way I make films. I usually have a complete creative freedom. 
Um, but yes, I'm, of course, I'm working within certain parameters we agree on, such as the number and length of episode in a series. And the client certainly shapes my films by suggesting unique experiences and places of the beaten track I may never be able to find on my own. Tell us a bit more about living in Langkawi. What would you enjoy about living, living there? Personally, I love the slow pace of the tropical lifestyle, the friendly laid-back attitude of the people, and the fact that there is this amazing nature and four different cultures right at my doorstep. So I can spontaneously grab my camera and head out to make a film, which is precisely what I did during the pandemic. Uh, you know, the, not even interstate travel was allowed, so it was great. I was just able to go out and shoot. And you've recently been producing a Dreaming of Malaysia Langkawi video series, some, some beautiful videos there. Where do you find the inspirations for each of those? When you live in Langkawi, the inspiration is pretty much everywhere you look. 10 million years old rainforest and mangroves that team with wildlife, all these different cultures, places of interest such as the sky cap or our waterfalls. Uh, so over the years, I created video series that capture most of the places and experiences travelers will enjoy. With the broadest shot ever since the pandemic started, there was a clear need for a destination awareness campaign. As they say, out of sight, out of mind. So I felt I should do my part and help, which is how I came up with the COVID antidote for Malaysia and later with the Dreaming of Malaysia Langkawi series. And one of the videos we were just talking about this off air that you just posted today is of some sea otters. I, I think that's quite close to where you live. Tell us about that video because that, that's quite fun. Yeah, that was an amazing experience, really. I have been here for 10 years for at least half the time. I had free access to the Datai Bay. So, you know, the chances to spot the otters were theoretically there, but I never got lucky. <clears throat> and a few months ago, I finally, I, I, I couldn't believe my luck. It was really beautiful. So the otters come, come out of the sea, don't they? They come onto, onto the beach and then they're kind of frolicking around and then they go back. I think the video is just a, is a few short minutes, but how long did it take you to shoot that? Yeah, just a few short minutes because they didn't hang around. I was so lucky because this is a one and a half kilometer long beach. If you spot them from far away, you can never make it to the spot in time. So I just happened to be in the middle just where they came out. And I was just lucky to, to get them captured and they went back. So that was a very quick thing. And is that the first time that you've seen them? I think you mentioned before that you, you heard that they were around, but is that the first time you've actually personally seen them? Yeah, very first time in 10 years. And you should see how many times I went there. It was amazing. So that particular spot is famous for them, is that right? Well, no, they just come at some place within this beach, but you cannot know which spot. That, that, that's why I was so lucky, you know, you have to be the right time, right spot. It's a big beach. You cannot just run over. It will be gone by once you reach it. So nature filmmaking is obviously very close to your heart. And you recently won a Travel Film Fest award for your film, The Egret's Voyage. Uh, it was also shown at film festivals across Europe and the U.S., uh, what inspired you to make that film and how does it feel for it to be recognized by prestigious awards juries? Well, Borneo is famous for its breathtaking nature and wildlife. There are some species such as the orangutans, pygmy elephants and the proboscis monkeys that cannot be found anywhere else in the world. So I always knew that one day I will make a film that captures this fascinating place. I was 
really thrilled about all the attention the film got. You know, while I was stuck in lockdown for most of the pandemic, the film got really to travel. You know, from a film festival in Moscow to Cyprus and Montenegro, all the way to New York. Three times a winner, finalist on three other occasions. I really wish I could have attended, you know, see my film play on the big screen, watch the facial expression and the emotional reaction of the different audiences. Um, so this part of the experience was not in the cards this year. But of course, it feels really great to be recognized. Um, you know, I have quite a unique style, I would say, certainly different from mainstream. So the video was shot in Sabah, East Malaysia, the island of Borneo, and it's a beautifully studied documentary of the island's wildlife in, in a slow, as you said, in, in a slow format. How long did it take to write, shoot and edit? Thank you for the compliment, Gary. Um, I spent 10 days in Sabah, moving between few locations. So I ended up with seven shooting days. Mm, the light condition and the chances to spot wildlife are best early in the morning and again late afternoon. So pretty much every day I went on two boat trips, each around three hours long. Post-production was, as always, quite time-consuming since there is no script or storyboard. I have to first find the story within the maybe 30 hours of footage. It's shot in a different places and under different light conditions, so to make it flow you need to do a lot of shot matching and color correction. But most consuming is the sound design. I use music as an emotional storytelling medium rather than just a background. So it takes some time to find the right songs. And shooting from a boat, the camera microphone mainly detects the loud constant sound of the motor. So I need to separately record 3D ambient sound on top of which I then layer sometimes as many as six or seven audio tracks, sourcing and manually inserting individual wildlife and nature sounds until the film comes to life and turns into this multi-sensory immersive piece. So. I would say altogether, the post-production was four weeks, maybe five. And you mentioned the, the, how much effort and, and detail that you put into the sound. The sound quality is fantastic. And you always say when you post videos to, to put the sound on because that really enhances the quality. But the viewer is, I mean, the, it's a good point because the, the visual quality is there, but the sound really transports you to the, the Kinabatangan River where it was actually shot. Now, you call it a slow travel film. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I feel that over the last decade or two, as the general pace of life kept accelerating, many travelers started to speed even through their holidays, you know, visiting three countries in the course of 10 days, rushing from one popular spot to another, more concerned in, you know, about more concerned about getting selfies than actually looking around. So as someone with spa background, I don't feel this rush healthy. And as a tourism professional, I'm sad to see travelers leave a place without getting to know it in a meaningful way. It's really shame for both the travelers and the destination alike. So with my nature films, I want to inspire people to slow down. With long shots and seamless transition, they get the viewer into a nearly meditative flow. The immersive soundscape, invites the audience to be present in the moment or so i hope and you know encourages them to take in the beauty around with all their senses and uh, if a film can get you into this state imagine the kind of experience you will have when approaching an actual trip with this mindset
slow travel movement has been around for quite a while. Travelers who embrace this philosophy not only develop a much more meaningful relationship to the places they visit, but also contribute to health of our planet through a reduced carbon blueprint, carbon blueprint. Um, by staying for a prolonged time in one place, right? And you need less flights, take shorter length trips. Um, it used to be more of a niche travel segment, but it seems that during the pandemic, both travelers and the travel industry started to rethink the way we approach travel. So according to an article in Condena's Traveler, the general trend in the post-COVID era may be going into this direction. So, well, that would be great. For many of our listeners, it might be quite unusual to hear that an award-winning film like the one that you've created didn't have a storyboard. So when you were shooting, did you know what you were looking for or did the ideas come as you were actually on the shoot? I never work with the storyboard because everything is really based on, you know, capturing authentic moments. And to be very honest, neither of the productions I'm making uh, makes make it possible. You cannot know where you can, you know, where suddenly the orangutan comes out or what you get to spot. And the same goes for my cultural heritage films. You know, it's a very fast-paced environment. People, you know, left from you, someone falls in trance, you know, on the right. I don't know, there is a major fire blow or something. You cannot be prepared for what will happening and therefore you cannot really plan. And um, the storytelling, yeah, that's why it's quite time-consuming, the post-production, because sometimes I have like 30 hours, 40 hours, right? And I want to condense it to, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes film. But the story is in there. I don't feel like I'm inventing the story. The story is somewhere in there, you know, like Michelangelo, they said he was carving the angel uh, from the stone, like the stone was somehow trapped in it he was just freeing him right so that's how i feel about uh, developing a story you know you have all this footage and you look through it so many times and start you know moving it around and some shots really speak to you and suddenly you know the, the story kind of starts emerging that's a great perspective. You referenced there your cultural heritage filmmaking. And aside from the, the travel and, and the nature filmmaking that you do, cultural heritage is something that's a real passion for you. Uh, and you've created a 10-day-long cultural heritage filmmaker workshop, which I think you are launching in Sarawak once the pandemic is over. Um, tell us a bit more about that. I'm super passionate about cultural heritage films. The world is changing uh, very fast. You know, Aboriginal cultures are vanishing in the name of progress. Cultural identity slowly dissolves as a result of globalizations. And, you know, some of the cultural experiences, once they get packaged as a travel product, you know, they get diluted. Uh, so, so I'm very concerned about all of that. And... Uh, Clearly, I don't have the power to stop this development, but I do believe that cultural heritage films can make a difference. By celebrating ancient customs and rituals, you instill pride in the communities, and, you know, encouraging the younger generation to keep the tradition going. And I hope the travel industry begins to realize that travelers, particularly those from the West, are much more spellbound by an authentic, temple ceremony, for example, and by fake cultural demonstrations. So the world is a big place. So of course, it's not a mission for a single filmmaker, which is why I developed a 
cultural heritage workshop for filmmakers, which I, as you said, plan to launch in Sarawak and bring gradually to some Asian and African countries. I plan to work together with the governments and tourism boards, hoping that together with national airlines, uh, they will bear the cost of travel and accommodation for international filmmakers. And then in exchange, they end up with amazing films that help them promote authentic cultural tourism in their country. I also want to empower the indigenous voice. So a couple of spots will be reserved for local filmmakers who can attend free of charge. So it's a really exciting project. My whole heart is in it. So I cannot wait for the pandemic to be finally over so I can launch. Yeah, that sounds a really, really exciting project. And you're also writing a book on the topic. Yes, it wasn't really planned, but uh, there are a lot of aspects a filmmaker needs to take into consideration and plenty of unique skills he needs to master in order to produce a heritage film that is ethically sound, captivates the audience, and at the same time, you know, remains truthful and authentic representation, um, which the portrait communities identify with. Yeah, so when I started to put together the teaching materials, I realized there is so much knowledge to share. It will amount to a book. And since not every filmmaker intrigued by cultural heritage films may be in the position to attend my workshops, I eventually decided to make the book available on Amazon once it's complete. And how's the progress going? Mm, I would say a third is like fine writing done. Um, another third is, you know, rough, which I need to work with the text more, but all the ideas are already there and a third is outstanding. And for you, for you personally, you mentioned there about cultural heritage filmmaking, some of the reasons that you like it. Um, you know, what, what sort of projects have you worked on that you, you're kind of proud of over, over time? Uh, I think my favorite film was the, was a Hindu production, which was shot here in a temple, Hindu temple. Personally, I feel if when you watch the film, you really feel like you are in there. You know, there are so many emotions, so many close-ups, you know, the sound really gets you in. It was actually interesting to shoot that because, you know, it was, it, it was over a few days. And most of the time there was this trance-inducing drumming. So, you know, you're, I'm, I'm not exempt from reacting to that, right? And I was exposed at all times. So at one point I actually reached a situation I, I, I was getting dizzy myself I was not falling in trance you know not screaming not not uh, you know but uh, yeah I was I was feeling all dizzy and shaky so at some point I, I had to sit down and shoot from where I was sitting so there is a whole passage which is mainly shooting what's happening from this perspective so you see like people you know like the feed going around uh, but it, I, I feel it actually made it even more authentic. You know, when I, when it was happening, I was like, oh my God, this is horrible. Like I, I'm not even like able to do what I need to do. But, but once I started to work with it, I was like, yeah, you can really feel that whole, yeah. Yeah. So that's probably my favorite film. Fascinating. Hopefully we'll get a link for that and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Now, as you mentioned there, Camilla, is there's, the pandemic has made everybody rethink the purpose of travel, the meaning of tourism, and particularly here in Southeast Asia. Um, but as we go forward, you know, what role do you think that film and video production can play in helping tourism organizations and companies to tell their stories, but in more sort of immersive, engaging and, and meaningful ways? 
Yeah, I feel the travel industry made a great progress over the last five, six years. When I was starting out, the most important part of Upitch was to generally sell the idea that film and video deserve a place in the marketing mix. So that has changed a big time. Uh, you know, these days, every tourism board, resort or travel company realizes that to get across this multisensory appeal, which is inherent to travel, there is probably no better medium. Uh, but I don't feel all the tourism players are getting it right. You know, there is um, in the past, even a shaky video with poor audio quality would get a great exposure simply because there were not many videos around. Now video is pretty much dominating all the social media. So to get the desired attention, the content needs to stand out whether through quality or, you know, some unique signature style. And uh, I also feel uh, it's important for the tourism players to get more strategic. You know, if you want to attract high-yield mature travelers, a high-energy video with rock music in the background presented by a young wannabe influencer is not really going to get you far. And I see that all the time happening. You know, like there is a luxury brand and then you see type of videos you are wondering. It's like a backpacker presenting a luxury brand, which is, you know, I, I, it just doesn't fit. So my advice would be to really look at the target market, you know, give a proper thought to what kind of productions will appeal to the different segments. You, you also, you know, not one production will not appeal to all of the all of the travelers you want to attract unless you have a really, you know, homogeneous market. Yeah, and people should take the time, you know, to like explore different styles and uh, connect with artists that are able to truly capture the essence and whose style is something that will resonate with the audience you target. You know, if someone asked me to do some bungee jumping, skydiving, you know, <laughs> some crazy adrenaline junkies video, I would pass it to a colleague. Like, I, I wouldn't be the right person for it. So I think people should should be much more strategic about what kind of production they are doing, you know, wh who are they targeting, what do they hope to achieve by that? You, you hit two, two nails on the head there. I think one you said being more strategic and one also focusing much more on what it is you want to achieve and, and the market that you're aiming at. Now, I've worked with brands over the years on, on video presentations and you know, I've sat in meetings many times and Right from the outset, some companies want to achieve too much from a video. They're trying to cram too much in, and then it just looks too cluttered and too, and too busy. And like you said, you're, with this kind of approach of trying to catch all and trying to get as much as you can into a video, it ends up just looking a bit of a, a, bit of a mess. Yeah, very much so. And also personally, you know, not everyone may agree with it, uh, but those who hire me certainly do. Uh, you know, these narrations, that's, first of all, you are losing so many travelers because not everyone speaks English, right? So for me, I use music, which, which I perceive as an emotional language, which, you know, is worldwide. Everyone can relate to it in their own way. But if you need to do, like if it's sometimes you want to share facts, that's fine. But, you know, what's really killing me, there are videos you see like a... For example, you were addressing my video about the about the sea otters, right? And believe me, there would be people who would be saying, "Okay, now they are just rolling in the sand. 
and you know and look at the beautiful view right they do that in captions in narration and they are you know now they are taking away the possibility for the viewer to really connect with it they are kind of interfering they are telling him what he can what he should see he is seeing it already so that's really my like oh my god don't go there but yeah it's a very common thing like all this it's over narrated you know it's yeah that's how i feel yeah i think you're absolutely right particularly with immersive video content you want people to make their own interpretations as you say make their own connections with it rather than holding their hands and trying to guide them about how they should feel or how how they should respond i think that's what makes my film films most different because i'm not trying to like answer any question i'm trying to to get people curious you know i want to leave them with with them wondering oh why did the orangutan behave this way you know what what does it mean why did they do this in our ritual you know because once you get them into the state of mind the only way for them to get these questions answered is really to get on a plane you know and visit the the place which i captured in the film and explore the nature or the culture uh, which was conveyed in the film right so yeah so to me you know sometimes you, you explain everything you you let people know this is uh, there is nothing left for them they need to explore already they watched it good yeah i agree with that leave people with more questions than answers absolutely So as we approach the end of 2021 Kamala the what are your personal aspirations for 2022 do you have any exciting travel plans and and what projects are you looking forward to to developing well with all borders in southeast asia closed until recently i couldn't really plan <laughs> so my 2022 will be sure very surprising even to myself Uh just before the pandemic started I developed a really interesting destination campaign concept for Papua New Guinea. I'm not really sure but it will take place. They are not even close to opening as far as I know, but it would be definitely a dream to uh, come true. But other than that, I would love to make some films about tribal rituals in the Indonesian part of Borneo. I feel drawn to Cambodia and Laos and um Yeah, and to be very honest, I hope to get to to Europe to see my family. It has been 3 years. Far too long. So, yeah. Yep, uh, well I hear you. I hear you uh, very very strongly there. Yeah, getting back to Europe is going to be very very important, but also like you said after 2 years of not being able to travel around this region here in Southeast Asia and and beyond in Asia Pacific, it will be nice to have the options to to choose your travels again. So Kamala thanks so much for for your insights today telling us about your video and your filmmaking work it's fascinating we'll put some links up onto the show notes uh, thanks very much again for your time Well thank you very much for having me thank you thanks So that brings us to the end of this edition of the show we hope that you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and your comments on anything that we discussed with Kamala or anything that we missed out drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show or on Twitter SEA Travel Show. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalog on our website www.theseasiatravelshow.com or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podchaser, Castbox, Overcast, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. Just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. 
So that's a wrap for today, but I'll be back tomorrow with our new weekly show, the SEA Travel News Show, when amongst other things, I'll be speaking with Vincent Fitchett Vadakam in Bangkok about Thailand's reopening. Look forward to seeing you then.